A very good afternoon to our audience tuning in from various locations to a webinar hosted by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. Today's webinar is titled, titled Wither Self-Sufficiency, Unpacking the UAE's Food Security Strategy. This event falls under MEI's Bridging the Gulf Public Education series, and this constitutes our 15th episode of the series. Our distinguished guest speaker for today is His Excellency Dr. Abdul Nasser Ashali, the UAE's Assistant Minister for Economic and Trade Affairs. Please allow me to say a few words about today's topic, food security. Food security as a global concern is more pronounced than ever with the Russian-Ukraine crisis holding back you know, grain exports. Recently, a report released by Deep Knowledge Analytics, which produced a food security index, ranked both Singapore and the UAE rather highly. From a regional perspective, however, the report states that the Middle East and North African region also has high regional rates of inflation and food insecurity, specifically 75% in expected high inflation and 79% in expected insecurity, as opposed to the region of East Asia and the Pacific with an expected high inflation rate of 39% and an expected insecurity rate of 30% respectively. So this is a kind of scope that we are trying to tackle in today's webinar by asking our guest speaker the relevant questions, of course. Um, and we will shortly be inviting our executive director at the Middle East Institute to provide opening remarks. To give you a short introduction of our executive director, Ms. Michelle Thiel, she has more than 20 years of experience in both the government and private sectors, and her career has spanned international relations, corporate and digital communications, and her career in foreign affairs previously has taken her all over the world and served, and she served as Singapore's Deputy High Commissioner in Canberra. She then joined IBM, first as communications leader with IBM Singapore and later with IBM ASEAN. And prior to joining the Middle East Institute, Ms. Thiel was working with local SMEs focused on digital content redesign for Singapore government agencies. Without further ado, please allow me to invite our Executive Director, Ms. Michelle Thiel, to give the opening remarks. Oh, sorry. Um, my screen was locked. <laughs> so good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's session under the Institute's Bridging the Gulf series, which was an initiative of Dr. Clemens Che, and which has become very much a fixture of the Institute's regular events. It gives me great pleasure to welcome His Excellency, Dr. Abdul Nasser Al Sha'ali, Assistant Minister for Economic and Trade Affairs at the UAE Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation. Thank you, Minister, for taking time out of a very busy schedule to speak to us today. 
Food security is an issue that concerns both our countries. We are small, dependent on free and open international trade routes and stable global supply chains. But the world in the last three years has proven to be anything but predictable. In 2022, our focus has turned to the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on oil and gas prices, food supplies, and easy access to goods and services. Above all, there's the threat of climate change. For us in Singapore, and for many small states, climate change is an existential threat. If we don't address it soon and take real action, the world populations could suffer. What can we do then to secure our food supplies? I think to understand what we can do, we must go back to where our priorities lie. Here, Singapore and the UAE are similar. We take actions to secure our supplies in the short to medium term by building our stockpiles, and we look to alternative suppliers in order to plug any gaps. But both our countries also play a long game, putting in place long-term plans and strategies that ensure continuity and stability. In 2018, long before COVID or the Russia-Ukraine war, the UAE had already started to put these building blocks into place with its announcement of a National Food Security Strategy 2051. Sustainability goes hand in hand with the acquisition of agricultural and food production assets. Both our countries seek to balance self-sufficiency against imports and food accessibility is critical for both our populations. In hearing the UAE story, there will be many elements that are also the Singapore story of how we consider strategies for sustainability and access to stable supply chains. I cannot think of a more appropriate speaker for today than Dr. Al Sha'ali. The minister's current responsibilities cover the UAE's economic, commercial, and financial interests, and His Excellency oversees the country's economic policies vis-a-vis -vis other countries. Please join me, therefore, in welcoming Dr. Al Sha'ali today. Thank you, Ms. Chiu our Executive Director, MEI. Before I hand it over to uh, Dr. Charlie, His Excellency, uh, I'd like to say a few more words about his bio. Uh, his Excellency Dr. Charlie was appointed as Assistant Minister of Economic and Trade Affairs in January 2020, where he works really closely with His Excellency Ahmed Asayek, the Minister of State in charge of the economic sector in the ministry. So as our Executive Director has already mentioned, in his capacity, Dr. Al-Shali facilitates implementation of the country's economic policy towards other countries and ensuring the necessary report. support is provided to facilitate foreign investments growth. Concurrent to this role, in January 2021, he was tasked with overseeing the policy planning department. He is also vice chairman at the UAE International Investors Council, and his board membership roles include the Anwar Gagash Diplomatic Academy. Uh, and also at Zaid University Council. Throughout his professional career, Dr. Al-Shali has won several awards, notably the Foreign Minister's Medal for the Distinguished Director. Interestingly, and I say this again to emphasize that he is really the right person for today's topic, uh, Dr. Al-Shali holds a PhD in economics from the Australian National University for his thesis entitled Reconceptualizing Comparative Advantage and Food Sovereignty, an Unconventional Approach to Global food security. So without further ado, please allow me to invite our guest speaker for today, His Excellency Dr. Al-Shali, to start the presentation. 
please. Um, thank you very much, uh, Clemens, and uh, thanks to the uh, executive director of the Institute and to the Institute. Thanks to everyone who has uh, been working really hard in uh, putting this together. It's always a pleasure uh, to be among colleagues and to be able to speak about uh, a topic that is uh, quite close to my heart and I'm quite passionate uh, about. Let me first start by um, telling you all how uh, this whole connection with food security started. I think it was the year 2014 or 15 when um, I got a call from the foreign minister and uh, in 2015, yes, food security was important, but it's not as important as it is today. And so that's, that's the thinking uh, at the time. And that's uh, how you would look at certain trends and expect, or at least be able to foresight that there might be an issue in the future, uh, I'm assuming. But I got this call and he said, uh, you know, where are you? I said, I'm in the office. He's like, okay, come right away. So, so I went to see him and he basically said to me, how can we better evaluate the UAE's food security from the UAE's perspective? So we, I, we understand that there are all kinds of reports or indices or publications that would analyze or assess the food security of a certain country in, you know, in relation to other countries, but how can we, better understand our food security and where do we stand when we look at our food security, both regionally and globally. So that's when I started working on an index. And I remember my first iteration of that index and I gave it to him and he said, this is a bunch of numbers that don't make any sense. And he was right. Um, the, the way I presented this to him was not clear uh, because I also did not really understand how to better assess this. A couple of years later, this uh, became a much larger uh, project than uh, a policy paper. And um, this is when I started doing my PhD and developing a few indices, which Clemens is now quite familiar with in the uh, thesis. And, and the, the main thought was, we want to be able to look at the numbers and see how can we situate the UAE in a place that is comfortable for us in the current time for our food security and will also position us in a very good way in the future. So for example, just, just to, to illustrate, um, as a country that relies majorly or massively on imports for its food security, are we getting the food from the right places? And once you ask this question, you start looking at every single food commodity and in every single food commodity, you start looking at where are you getting the food from? And then are we importing 10% of your needs from that country or are you importing 50% of your needs from that country? And that was the first question that we, we wanted to answer. The second question that we were looking at as a country with uh, excess capital and excess financial uh, muscle or strength or uh, capacity, we tend to invest also in food security, not only, or not in the way that people think, oh, the UAE is buying land in this country by the thousands of acres or doing that. It's not the case. What we're really looking at is, okay, do we invest directly into the farms? Do we, do we invest directly into the companies that are trading the food commodities? And so that was also another question where we asked ourselves, are we investing in the right places? What if we invest in a country and then the, the next thing that happens in the country is, a, is some sort of a political change in the government, or there might be food protesting or bread rioting. You know, the country is unstable politically. There could be issues in the future. What if the country decides not to let, allow you to export um, any food commodities, which is something that happened in 2008 uh, on the back of the financial, on the back of the global financial crisis. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, 
those were the two main questions that we were trying to answer from the UAS perspective. And the intention and the direction that the research and then the findings uh, took is to make sure that whatever we come up with is something that we can see and we can assess based on what we know about what the UAE can do and cannot do. And so if you look at, you know, um, the, the different findings, whether it's assessing the comparative advantage in a country with respect to a certain commodity or whether you're looking at the food severity of a country based on its self-sufficiency uh, per capita, this is general information in the sense of any country can be looking at those findings, can be looking at those rankings for the past 50 years, and they can basically decide how they want to take this forward. And the intention was, yes, this information will be made publicly available. Anyone can access this information. Anyone can see how countries have been performing in terms of their food security and the main uh, staple commodities, which are wheat, rice, and uh, corn or maize. But then each country knows best or knows better how to frame their uh, food security strategy moving forward. This is how the whole thing started. And this is how it led uh, to this uh, fully fledged research uh, that, that is now uh, published and is available online uh, at a news portal. Uh, at a news portal. Uh, and so once, the, once I had the findings in hand, we started looking at uh, quite a few things. One of them is going back to my first point, how do we diversify our uh, food import sources? For us to be able to do so, we want to make sure that the country is not a country that is prone to bread riots or food protesting and so on. We wanted to make sure that the country does not impose export bans. And even if the country imposes export bans or has the tendency to do so every now and then, then we need to make sure that whatever amount of food that we import from that country is kept to the minimum percentage possible so that whenever there is a blockage uh, or there is a uh, disruption in the supply chain for whatever reason, whether it's a COVID-19 pandemic or any other kind of pandemic or even a conflict somewhere, we are able to make up for that lost uh, quantity or volume from any other source because we do have that. And so based on the, the findings and the study itself, we have prim primary alternate sources of imports, secondary uh, alternate uh, sources of imports, and even third and fourth columns. Number two, Investing in a country means that also this country should have the capacity to produce food, to trade food, and they also do not have the tendency to ban your exports. Because if I go and invest in a country and that country decides for any kind of reason, you know, you have a COVID-19 pandemic, food prices are going through the roof, and the country wants to secure its domestic supply for its domestic consumption to make sure that the prices are kept at a reasonable level, then that country would be doing fine, but we would have a problem because we cannot get the food out or we can't import the food from that country. In the 1980s, and, and this is one of my uh, favorite stories, uh, one of the fa my favorite stories that I read about during my research is that a, a prime minister or a deputy prime minister from the Gulf region, from the GCC, decided to visit a country in East Asia to see whether it would be worthwhile to invest money in agriculture there. And then uh, when he came back and he was asked, why didn't you make any investments? He said, I don't have an army to get the food out. And so uh, when you look at the statement or when you try to understand the statement, it just means that if that country decides not to get, let the food get out of its ports, I have no way to get the food out of its ports. 
So we want to make sure that when we are investing and we're putting certain amounts of capital investments in other countries, regardless of what kind of uh, form or uh, medium that investment takes, we want to make sure that we are investing exactly where we think that those investments are going to be worthwhile and, and are going to pay off uh, in the long term. Now, those are the two main uh, points that we are focusing on in terms of our uh, food security here in the UAE. When I take this and I expand it to the region around us, the belief that we have in the UAE is that as a country, we cannot be stable if the country or the countries or the region around us is not stable. And food security has always been a big uh, theme or a big uh, item on national security agendas whenever national security is being discussed. And the reason this is the case is because despite the fact that you have food producing countries in the region, they are exposed to bread rioting, they are exposed to food protesting because food prices have not been stabilized for the longest time. So whether they produce the food or whether they're importing the food, food prices could easily go uh, significantly higher whenever you have a pandemic like COVID-19 or whenever you have the whenever you have a conflict and, and two of your uh, biggest uh, producers and exporters of wheat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Based on that, you would see that the connection, even though this is not saying that this is, that this is a causation relationship, but let's say it's a correlation or some sort of a, uh, something that happens in parallel, that whenever food prices go up, especially in the staple commodities of those countries, you would immediately see either a bread riot taking place or a food protest taking place at different scales. And so if this continues to be the case, and if we go back to 2011 and see what happened from 2011 onwards, we pretty much know that this cannot be something that is allowed to happen continue, continuously because it's not going to direct the region except in a very detrimental and in a very negative uh, direction which we do not want to see because it's important for the entire region to be stable and food security is a big component of regional stability. And this means that even if we are successful in diversifying our food import sources, we are successful in investing abroad when it comes to food security, not only for us, but for the region and for countries around the globe, we also want to make sure that the region itself is also able and capable of doing so by supporting them and whatever policies or strategies that they have with regard to their food uh, security. And this by extension means that you don't necessarily need to produce every single food commodity that you want to consume, but you have a balanced approach in terms of what do I need to produce and how much do I need to produce of it? And how can I import uh, the other food commodities or how can I make up for shortfalls from the uh, global market by making sure that I'm as diversified as possible in terms of my food import sources, so on and so forth. Clemens, um, I know that we, we talked about keeping this uh, brief so that we can allow for uh, Q&As and uh, a proper discussion. So I'm, I'm gonna stop here. And uh, you know how it is with, with academics. Uh, you know, once we start talking, it's very difficult to, uh, to make us stop. So, I, so I'll stop myself now and, and, and pass on the floor to you so that you can start with the questions uh, and the discussion. Thank you very much, Clemens. Thank you, Excellency. I think you gave us a lot of food for thought and uh, like to remind our audience that we are going to proceed into the Q&A segment. So feel free to throw in your questions via the Zoom chat box and then we can read them out to our speaker for today. So uh, like you said, Excellency, you know, as academics, you know, we 
we have the tendency to drone on and on about a certain topic, especially if it's within our specialized domain. But I had a question for you uh, to kick things off on your thesis, actually, which, of course, every academic thesis must make an authentic contribution to the literature. And here, in your own thesis, you identified that food sovereignty, which means that countries aim to be self-sufficient in their production of all their food needs, you saw food sovereignty as a threat to global food security. And that's as opposed to the conventional definition of the in the literature. So could, could you just take us through, you know, in a, in a brief survey of your findings, you know, how, how did you arrive at, at that? And, and are there any solutions to, to, to how you saw things? This was, this was one of the uh, major uh, definitions or concepts that I was struggling with when I was writing, because the second you say to someone that a country's food sovereignty could be a threat to global food security, everyone is going to you know, take a step back and be like, no, but that doesn't, doesn't really make any sense. So, so allow me to explain. Um, the idea here is that um, if you look at the 50s, 60s, even the 70s and the 80s, you would notice that there has been this upwards, downwards trend of many countries around the globe trying to be self-sufficient. And there's no problem with trying to be self-sufficient. The problem is, if you want to be self-sufficient, what is the cost? Or, or you're trying to be self-sufficient at what cost? Are you 90% self-sufficient? Are you 80% self-sufficient? Are you 70% self-sufficient? And if that's the case, then I have two questions for you. Does that mean you can cover your entire population no matter the size of that population equally? And then number two, at what cost? And once you start asking that question, you realize that many countries will be like, oh yeah, it's, it's costing us a lot, but it's better than importing uh, food from elsewhere. And so the, the argument in the thesis is that food sovereignty is not an issue as long as it addresses two main points. The first point that a country's food sovereignty should contribute to global food security, not undermine global food security, which means that if you're a country that possesses the comparative advantage to produce a certain food commodity, then by all means, go ahead and produce it and trade it in the global market. Number two, that a country's food sovereignty should be stemming from the farmer's food sovereignty, not the other way around. The, the, the problem that keeps happening is that you would always see that farmers in different regions, in different countries, they have been farming or planting or producing a certain food commodity for the longest time possible. So historically, they have been really good at it. They have been able to improve it over time. They could be, uh, they, they've managed to increase the yield over time, so on and so forth. But then the country comes in and says, but this is not the food commodity that I want. The food commodity that I want is either wheat or rice or something else that is a staple commodity that I want to consume, or it could be a commodity that they want to trade in international markets, and that does not really contribute to anyone's food security, such as producing cotton, for example. To better help you in understanding this, Clemens, let me go back to the example of Sudan, or let me, let me speak about Sudan. Sudan has a project that has been developed by the, uh, by the Brits uh, called the Jazeera Scheme. And the Jazeera Scheme is, a, is, a, is a quite an extensive plot of land with a very sophisticated irrigation system for that time. And uh, what that piece of land was producing was cotton. And then in the 19, I think late 1970s, uh, early 1980s, uh, Sudan took a different turn 
towards, even earlier, by the way, I think it was even earlier than the late 1970s, they took a turn towards being self-sufficient in wheat production. And so what they did, they transformed the production in the land from cotton to wheat. Now, here's what happened. Sudan was never, be, was never able to become self-sufficient in wheat. They, I think they flirted with 90% for maybe a year or two, but then it started taking a, uh, it took a nosedive into to very low numbers. And number two, funny enough and ironically, if they had, if they stuck with producing or cultivating cotton, a kilogram of cotton would have gotten them four kilograms of wheat, value-wise and price-wise. So, 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 so the, the, the idea here is, okay, you are trying to be self-sufficient in wheat, you want to be food sovereign, you don't want to be depending on other countries in, in, in your food security, but what you end up doing is you're not really focusing on, on what you are good at, which anyways will get you the exact food commodity at a much better rate, at a much more cost efficient or cost effective rate for your own food security. And so this is the, um, the balance that you need to strike between a country's food sovereignty and global food security. And this is the production and trade comparative advantage that you later on outlined in the same thesis, I guess, right? Yeah, uh, we've got a number of questions rolling in. Uh, the first one uh, is from my colleague Aisha Al-Sarifi, who's, uh, who's asking a question on climate change. And of course we know that uh, climate change has, been, has entered the, the global agenda as a mainstream topic. And so her question is, what if other countries wherein UAE is investing in terms of agriculture are impacted by climate change? Does the UAE provide support for their countries to adapt climate change in return? If there are examples, could you list some of them? I, I wouldn't want to name specific countries uh, that the UAE would be helping and assisting, but I would rather want to address it from, from, a, from a, a point of view where the UAE is a, is, is a responsible country globally. What that means is the fact that we have announced uh, our targets and the year that uh, we're going to achieve those targets and the fact that we have been uh, working on this despite being a hydrocarbon based uh, economy or a hydrocarbon producing country says a lot about the, the role that the UAE wants to, to play um, in terms of climate change. Now climate change uh, itself is also could be argued both ways in terms of is it really negatively impacting food security? Is it, is, is it not really negatively impacting food security? And, and this varies among uh, different countries uh, because certain countries in certain regions have been able to produce more of certain food commodities because of climate change and other countries have been producing less because of climate change. Now, the countries that are suffering the most are the countries who have been not able to move away from rainfall or rain-fed-based uh, food production to irrigation-based uh, uh, food production. And at the same time, they are in certain regions where they are prone to floods, they are prone to droughts, they are prone to all kinds of weather-related uh, or nature-related uh, events that could undermine their uh, food production and by extension, uh, food security. And this, this takes me back to a point that I mentioned in my uh, opening remarks or in my introduction that this is where you need to have a proper balance between food production and food imports, and where are you getting the food from? Thanks for the response. Uh, there's another question again uh, from the floor by Elizabeth Ong. Um, and the question is about whether there are comparisons during 
the drafting of your thesis between the UAE and East Asia, but also Australia's public policies, for example, irrigation policies uh, in the Murray-Darling Basin, and so on. How have you, what's your assessment of this comparative, uh, you know, I guess a comparative assessment when, you, when you're comparing the UAE with different regions and different countries? Well, unfortunately for uh, for my thesis and in my case, uh, I, I, my assessment extends to all countries. So it's 193 countries, uh, three different indices in each index, there are three commodities. So there's the food sovereignty index, there's the production comparative advantage, and there's the trade comparative advantage. So the way I looked at the issue was a very uh, eagle bird eye view, uh, 30,000 foot kind of uh, view. And so, because my approach is to, to assess all countries in terms of the three indices, I couldn't really deep dive into every single country except and whenever it's relevant to the UAE. So for example, you would see certain comparisons or certain benchmarks between the UAE and Singapore in certain aspects, or there will be certain comparisons between the UAE and countries in the region who have tried to become self-sufficient in a certain food commodity without being successful and trying to draw lessons from that by saying, Trying to be self-sufficient for the UAE is not going to work out because countries around us have tried and they have failed in doing so. Um, but in terms of specific irrigation projects or um, trying to uh, increase yields in certain regions, that has not been the case unless in the index itself, there were highlights of countries with great prospects or great potential for food security to contribute to also uh, global food security. Thank you. Another question is on technology, and I think that was uh, inevitable that that would come up. Uh, and, and the question you know, relates to how technology is used to enhance food security at home, such as vertical farming, where the UAE is setting an example in supporting this kind of technology. So the question, can you provide us with an overview where the UAE stands today in vertical farming? Okay, so um, one of the big topics nowadays is how can you make sure that there is um, access to food wherever food is needed. So for example, uh, part of the reason why there have been too many families, too many famines in the past is not that the country does not have enough food being produced, but that the country cannot distribute the food equally in the different regions. So whether you look at the Bengal famine, whether you, you look at uh, various famines in Ethiopia, there has always been enough food, but the food was not going around uh, for whatever reason, uh, because of hoarding, um, you know, retailers or suppliers trying to make sure that the price is too high before they sell it, uh, or because of infrastructure issues where they can't deliver the food. And so what urban cities and countries that, have, that are too urbanized compared to other countries are trying to do is to make sure that there is access to food wherever there are population centers that need that access. To do so, vertical farming or um, you know, growing food on your rooftops is a fantastic idea because you can have access to fruits, to certain fruits and certain vegetables without having to leave your compound or leave your community and drive for X number of miles and then try to purchase uh, whatever that you need to purchase, especially when you have something like COVID-19 and uh, lockdowns and people st staying at their homes or staying at their homes. Um, however, that being said, Yes, you can be really good at using as little water as possible to cultivate or to grow certain food commodities. You can have vertical farms in urban uh, centers. You can grow food over rooftops, but you cannot grow everything using those techniques. And that's a problem. Uh, so for example, I, I think I have seen 
the latest thing that I have seen about uh, rice, and rice is a staple commodity in BUE and it's a staple commodity in uh, East Asian countries, is that uh, rice can now be grown using uh, salty water. Now, is this going to be commercially viable for other countries to do so? Maybe, and if that's the case, that could actually resolve a major issue when it comes to rice because rice is one of the least traded food commodities around the globe. Thank you. And you, and you mentioned rooftop farming, which is something we, we are also looking at doing in Singapore as well, uh, in our public housing, uh, multi-story car parks as well. Uh, we got another question on, uh, well, it's, it's more two parts. It's what are the limitations of your study? That's number one. And, and part two is uh, how do you prevent the weaponization of food globally? Well, the first part, one of the key limitations has been that I could not study as many food commodities as possible. So I did, I focus on three commodities, which are wheat, rice, and corn or maize. Um, but um, what I really would like to see is the same methodology applied to all food commodities. Because my ideal situation, my ideal scenario to see at the end of the study was, okay, what country can trade what food commodities with what country? And not just focus on those three uh, uh, three commodities. The reason, the, the other reason why I'm saying this as well is because certain countries are better at producing uh, other food commodities than wheat, maize, and uh, and rice. So, for example, Costa Rica is quite good at producing coffee beans. And if I if I don't have an understanding of how good Costa Rica is at producing coffee uh, or coffee beans in comparison to other countries, I will not be able to better assess Costa Rica because right now I'm just assessing Costa Rica based on the three commodities that I have focused on. So that's one main limitation. Uh, the other limitation is that even though I focus on three staple commodities, but there are other staple commodities that uh, are there and I haven't included them in the study, such as potatoes, uh, for example, and they are among the five most produced commodities worldwide. Those are the main limitations uh, in the study. There were other data-related limitations in terms of, um, you know, uh, the Food and Agriculture Organization under the United Nations um, have different uh, ways or techniques of getting the data based on whether the country provides data on a regular basis. Do they have to estimate certain data points? Do they have to forecast certain data because they can't get the data regularly uh, at all times? So those were data. There are data-related limitations. Uh, there are commodities and expansion related um, uh, limitations. Uh, but what I also mentioned in the thesis itself is that this does not undermine in any way the study itself, because one of the main things that I focused on is to introduce a methodology that works and to apply it on three or to apply it to three commodities. But then the same methodology can be taken and expanded to any other commodity. Uh, that whoever is doing the study or the research uh, think is, 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 is relevant. The second part of the question is on food weaponization. And absolutely, because if you can control uh, food, then you can control uh, food pricing. And if you can control food pricing, you can basically dictate your terms. And that's why I mentioned famines uh, earlier on and before that, bread rioting and food protesting, because all of those are related to uh, high food prices in one way or the other, uh, or the uh, inability of a country to get food either from its domestic production or by importing it from elsewhere. Uh, how can we avoid it? We can avoid it by making sure that we are uh, not reliant or dependent on a single country 
If we are a food importing country, we shouldn't be reliant on a single source or two sources of food commodities. And at the same time, if we are a food producing country, we need to make sure that our food production or self-sufficiency policies are consistent. So I cannot basically encourage my farmers to produce a certain commodity for three years. And then whenever there's a problem with my water sources or uh, because the price of that commodity dropped internationally, I decide that I don't want to go with this food commodity and I want to, to basically produce another food commodity that is uh, going to get me higher prices in the international market. Thank you. Um, you mentioned famine, and of course, uh, we come to the other side of it, which is drought. And uh, of course, we would. it's also inevitable that we'll come to the topic of water security slash insecurity. And, and there are a number of questions. I'm going to just uh, group them together. Um, firstly, uh, the first part is, can international arbitration over water disputes be applied to avert danger of food security, food insecurity? And the second part is about the desalination efforts in the UAE, especially in the Liwa Desert, and whether there are further plans uh, in desalination, and if so, will these contribute to food, food production in any way? So uh, talking about the, the, the first part of the question or the questions, um, I'm not sure if, if, if everyone here knows this, but uh, one of the reasons why countries are not encouraged to export uh, their food production is depending on how much is the water proportion in that food commodity. So to them, if I have certain uh, water resources that I'm trying to guard and trying to protect and trying to sustain in the long term, then I cannot export too much food with massive or major water components, because that means in effect that I'm exporting my water resources. And this is one of the arguments that some countries use to, uh, to explain why they're not exporting uh, as much as they should be exporting. Now, uh, how, do, how can this be balanced? I think the situation is different from one country to another. So, so for example, if you talk about a country like Bhutan, Bhutan has massive uh, hydropower resources because of, of because of their water resources, which means that Bhutan is a country that can produce food and can export food at ease, especially when you take into consideration the small population. Uh, but other countries which with 10 or 12 or 15 times that population will need to make sure that whatever water resources that they have are being managed in the most efficient way possible, not only to export it, but even if they just want to produce food that is enough or sufficient for their uh, domestic consumption. Now, in the UAE's case, uh, we don't have, uh, obviously, we don't have water resources. And one, 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 major, one main reason or major reason why another country has suspended or stopped its wheat self-sufficiency uh, program is because they realized that they have been using most of their underground water resources, that they, they almost were running dry. And uh, to have some perspective here, they, they, they went all the way from uh, being uh, an importer uh, of that commodity to being one of the top 10 exporters of that commodity, but that was not sustainable in the future. So, so to us, when we look at all of those examples around us, we want to make sure whether it's desalination, whether we are taking uh, you know, water or, or extracting water from underground, or whether it's, it's basically uh, uh, water resources that are uh, being collected from, uh, from rainfall, that we are managing our water resources in the most efficient way possible. And that most efficient way possible does not mean that the UAE will become 
a food producer anytime in the future. Or let's say a net food producer anytime in the future. Thank you. Uh, and, and the next question really is, is a bit, it has to do with uh, geopolitics as well. And uh, this is, this question is, how have and will the Abraham Accords further ease the problems in food security, considering the bilateral comprehensive economic partnership with Israel uh, earlier this year, which includes cooperation in agri-tech and desert farming? Well, it's always good to um, be able to exchange uh, expertise and to understand other views. Uh, Israel uh, has been quite successful in um, protecting its food security and in enhancing and improving its food security over time. And they have managed to do it without necessarily uh, producing everything. But how do you produce what you need to produce in the most efficient and the most effective way possible? And that has to do with managing your water resources in the most uh, efficient way possible, like we're doing and like Singapore is doing. And at the same time, uh, how do you deploy agri-tech and uh, improving those food production techniques? Because, because for countries that are small in terms of their capacity of production and uh, not that great in terms of uh, historically in terms of producing their own food. You need to you need those fine tuning tweaks to make sure that you can improve whatever that you're producing. And, and I think this is where the importance of this relationship comes from: is that uh, ability to exchange and to uh, exchange expertise and 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 learn from each other's uh, experiments and examples. Thank you. Uh, another one on uh, something related to history as well uh, and, and commodities in general, which we have been talking about is the comment and question is as follows. Claims, claims to offshore commodities was the primary reason of colonialism, modern history. Does renewal of the same quest due to COVID-19 experiences risk bring about the same disease or illness of colonialism? Could you please answer this under the context of your observation on timely procurement, which is as essential as the investment in third-party countries? Well, um, one of the themes that I talk about in the thesis has to do with uh, how colonial trends have shaped today's food trading system. So, so if, you look, if you look at different regions historically, we have not really moved significantly away from how things used to be how things have uh, changed now. So you would always see that countries that have suffered from uh, having to produce commercially uh, attractive commodities versus commodities that they have always been producing uh, historically and they have been good at and have been contributing to their food security. So that, that colonial link has always been there. It has not been broken. It has been weakened in certain places. It has been diminished in other places, but it has not uh, disappeared entirely. And so what you see today is that there were two or three companies, major companies that were uh, in charge or in control of uh, trading food commodities in the past. And today you also have a couple of uh, companies that are in charge of uh, all food being traded. So when 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 we talk about uh, food trade or countries exporting food commodities to other countries or importing food from other countries, the first thing that comes to your mind, you would think that, oh, so the UAE exported X amount of lettuce to this country. No, the matter of fact is there's a trading company that has bought that uh, amount of lettuce and they have sold it to this other country through their partners there. And so, 
this link has always been there, but it has evolved from certain companies to other companies. Certain countries have a say in this based on their relationships with, with those uh, trading, uh, uh, trading companies, but, but that still doesn't mean that um, that link has been broken. Thank you. I think there was also a comment, I think more comment than a, than a question about how uh, COVID vaccination drives have been welcomed uh, to reach remote and rural communities. And some countries use food rewards to incentivize people to be vaccinated. And, 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 and this offers also a window opportunity to reuse this touch point to maintain food security, for example, for booster vaccines. But I'm going to to tap on this question and, and add the question, add a part two to this comment, which is a question. And the UAE's you know, national food security strategy has the goal of zero hunger. And so I'm going to ask, you know, what about vulnerable groups? How is the UAE you know, addressing food access to vulnerable groups? Well, as a country, the I mean, despite what you see around the globe in terms of uh, food prices being quite high, and inaccessible for many segments of the population. We managed here in the UAE through the pandemic, post the pandemic, and even now to make sure that food is accessible. So, so there are different schemes that are being followed. So, so certain families that are under a certain level of income are able to take or to buy uh, subsidized food commodities from certain outlets uh, or at all, at all times. And this basically enables them to have that access unhindered or un, uh, not undermined in any way or, or, or another. Uh, there are also other schemes that are being followed in terms of, um, you probably might have seen this in the media uh, when it was, uh, providing uh, billions of meals to uh, certain populations that had no access to food. And you can see it, I'm pretty sure you can, you can find it uh, online. It was announced by the Prime Minister, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid. And, and so, so, so what we're doing, yes, it's, it's about zero hunger, globally, but it's also about making sure that segments of our population have access to food, regardless of what's happening to food prices uh, abroad. And this is what I was also referring to earlier on in my comments when I, when I said that a successful country in managing its food security is not a country that can produce its food, it's not a country that is able to diversify its food import sources, and that's it, but it's a country that can make sure that food prices within its borders is always at a consistent expected or predicted level rather than you know just going up and down uh, which makes it quite unpredictable and makes it inaccessible to many segments of the population at different times thank you and, and you talk about how things have to be done in a systematic way and, and next question is on uh, acquisition and investments and the question is abu dhabi's abu dhabi based every business firm al dahra has gone about the acquisition of hundreds of thousands of acres agricultural land uh, across the globe, including investments in Africa. What are the next steps after acquisition and investment? Let me make something very clear, by the way, which is which is also something that I was shocked to read about when um, I was doing my research, is that most of, of the announced or the media covered land grabs, I'm not just talking about the UAE, I'm talking about other countries as well, are not accurate. So, so sometimes there are announced deals, sometimes there are these that come up or come out in the media, but they're not really these that have taken place. So whether it's Adahra in the UAE or any other country in other countries around the globe, 
not that is not necessarily true so just just to 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 put this out there now um how do you make sure that if you're investing in agriculture that you're doing it the right way number one you need to make sure that if you're doing this you are uh, basing your food production and your agriculture investment on the farmers not on what the government of that country is most keen on wanting you to produce. And this is the point when I said that a country's food sovereignty should be stemming from the farmer's food sovereignty and what they are able to produce, not the other way around. Which also means that any, any agri-investment or agro-investment should be uh, socially responsible in terms of benefiting the farmers or whoever is producing the food in that specific region or that uh, plot of land or the uh, different uh, plots of land. Uh, number two, making sure that there's political stability in whatever country that you are investing in, or at least having the guarantees and the checks and balances in place so that whenever there's an issue, you are still able to export the food, not only to the UAE, but also to other, uh, to other countries around the globe based on the food trading system that you have in place. The idea, again, is not to produce, if, if you want to, to, to basically be a successful uh, businessmen and, and trading food, you can't be selling your food just to your country. You have to sell it elsewhere, wherever the, the food price is actually uh, attractive. Um, one of the uh, one of the most interesting findings uh, that I have seen uh, during my research as well was that most of the food being produced in Africa from Chinese investments in Africa is being sold in Africa not exported back to uh, China. And the reason why is because it's just most profitable to do so in Africa rather than having to ship it all the way to China, which will incur transportation costs, shipment costs, uh, infrastructure related issues, and make the price way too expensive by the time it gets to China. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to take one last question from the floor. I think there's nothing that, that has come in after that last question. and. Uh, the question is about the UAE's national food security strategy once more and its uh, target of being an, a world-leading innovation-driven uh, food hub. Uh, and how far along has, has the UAE gone in achieving its targets, including the target of being number one on the Global Food Security Index? Well, um, the, if, if you... If you uh, if you read what the index is about, the index is about making sure that there is access to food, that the food is affordable, uh, that the quality and safety of the food is uh, at a high level. And very recently, a few years ago, they introduced um, whether or not uh, that country is exposed or vulnerable to climate change, which could hinder its production. Now, since we don't really produce much of our food, then that will always be a, a pillar where we're not doing that great. But we can always do fantastic in the other pillars because of our ability to, to import the food. Now, the question is, or what we are trying to focus on moving forward, is to be able to import each of our food commodities from as many countries as possible and to minimize the percentage of reliance on certain countries to the bare minimum that we could do. This will allow us to make sure that, okay, we do have the capacity, we have the capabilities to pay for the food and to import it. We just want to make sure that we are uh, we have the access to different or to various food import sources and that we can basically get the food not only of great quality and safety uh, standards uh, but also at a price that is reasonable that's affordable and that allows uh, segments all segments of our population to access that food 
And so it's it's quite uh, premature to say how far or how we close, how close we are for the, uh, towards that target. I would rather say that we are on the right track when it comes uh, to our food security, as long as we manage to focus on what we are good at and we keep improving it. Because achieving achieving a certain goal is one thing, but then making sure that you can stay there and maintain for the longest term is, is another thing altogether. Thank you very much, Dr. Shali, Your Excellency, for addressing all these questions in a very right manner. Uh, of course, of thanks to our audience for, for rolling out all these questions in quick succession in the chat box as well. Uh, before we end off today's session, I'd like to invite uh, the Chargé d'Affaires of at the UAE Embassy of Singapore, Sheikh Saleh Saif Al Sharki, to uh, deliver the closing remarks. And uh, just a, a note on his bio: he he has been posted. He was posted to Singapore in 2016, and since then, he has been here to strengthen the bilateral relations between the UAE and, and Singapore. And he holds a Master of Business Administration from SMU, Singapore Management University. Without further ado, further ado, please let me invite. Sheikh Saleh Sharki to deliver the final remarks for today. Thank you, Clemens. Thank you very much. Your Excellency, Dr. Abdel Nasser Al-Sha'ali, ladies and gentlemen, a very good afternoon, and I hope you found the seminar insightful and beneficial. Dispute the fast economic and technological advance that we have seen over the last two decades, million people in the world still suffer an alarming lack of food. The number is likely to increase if the food production and distribution channels are impacted. Food security is a major concern for many countries, either because of inability to produce enough food or because of the negative impact of the global economic and environmental crisis. Today, and because of the COVID-19, the ongoing geopolitical development, food security has become more than ever national security priority. But facing those challenges will require an establishment of bilateral, regional, and international alliance to benefit from the worldwide exper uh, expertise, experience, and resources uh, in the hope of turning all this into a profitable, shareable, and equal distribution instead of being a source of competitiveness. Singapore and United Arab Emirates enjoy a special bilateral cooperation. The cooperation includes several areas such as a new industry and technology, green economy, smart cities, capital development, culture, as well as other vital areas of the both countries. I'm happy that the Middle East Institute has taken the initiative to organize this talk and invite His Excellency Dr. Abdel Nasser Sha'ari to talk about the UAE food strategy in depth and provide a platform for discussion between the participants. In conclusion, I'm convinced that this talk will be beginning of the other meetings to catalyze and establish bilateral dialogue between Singapore and United Arab Emirates in the hope of developing a framework for more sustainable cooperation in food security. Being two credible gateways for both respective regions, such cooperation in this vital sector will positively reflected on people and countries of the Middle East and Asia. And thank you all for attending the seminar, and I wish you all a good day ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sheikh Saleh. And with that, we come to the end of today's webinar on Bridging the Gulf. Again, fantastic addition to the 
series uh, by Dr. Abdul Nasser Ashali's uh, you know, back and forth dialogue on food security. And uh, we hope to stay in touch, of course. And I thank everyone for their participation in one way or another, and also for the energetic questions that, that make the discussion so lively. So thank you again, and hope to see you on our next webinar.